0: Good morning. It's great to be with y'all. If I haven't met you before, uh, as David mentioned, my name's Cam, and I just concluded my fourth year serving as the Regional Director of Campus Outreach Lynchburg, and my tenth year serving with the Ministry Campus Outreach, I became a Christian at Randolph College, uh, just down, down the street from Rivermont, or in our backyard here, and became a member in 2011. So my wife's name's Catherine, we have two little girls, Joya and Myra, and it's a great joy to call Rivermont, our church home, and our church family, and I'm thrilled to be able to uh, share God's Word with you this morning. Perhaps you've heard of the British actor Brian Blessed. Brian is described as a giant of a man accompanied by an eloquent wit in an operatic voice known for his hearty, king-sized betrayals on film and television. He's played notable roles in theatrical productions ranging from Cats to Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, And he starred in films such as Henry V and Flash Gordon. Perhaps most importantly, at least in our household, is his performance as the voice actor, Grampy Rabbit, in the children's show, Peppa Pig. Brian isn't blessed in name and career only. At 67, he became the oldest man to reach an altitude of 28,000 feet without supplemental oxygen while trying to ascend the summit of Mount Everest. He has successfully conquered the peaks of Akangawa and Kilimanjaro. He's the oldest man to ever reach the North Magnetic Pole on foot, which required A, lots of walking through very cold weather, and B, according to Brian, hand-to-hand combat with a polar bear. He survived a plane crash over the remote jungles of Venezuela and once collapsed on stage due to momentary heart failure only to shake it off and finish the play. Brian's life has been, as his name suggests, blessed. Blessed in an an ordinary fashion, but blessed nonetheless. I mean, who doesn't want what Brian has? Wealth, health, fame, and glory. And who wouldn't feel blessed? It's easy for Brian and for us to attribute blessing to his life. What about yours? What about mine? Are we blessed? In our text last week, the author of the book of Hebrews brought this idea of blessing to our attention. He contrasted those who had sat under the blessings of God, the covenant blessings of God, And receive those blessings of his love and his grace with those who are, in his words, near to being cursed. Now, those two words, blessed and cursed, are important to the storyline of the Bible and the message of Christianity. There's a sense in which those two words categorize all of humanity's relationship toward God. We are either blessed or we are cursed. We either enjoy God's gracious blessings in Christ, or we live under the curse of our own sin in God's rightful judgment. The question that the text pressed us to ask last week is rather obvious. Am I blessed, or am I cursed? And this question would have almost certainly been burning in the hearts and minds of the original audience as they read those words in chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. The author, as loving pastors do, anticipates their subsequent fears. And he writes these words that we'll read today. His intention in writing our text this week is to calm their fears that they might press on in faith. And he does so by offering them in one word, assurance. He wants them to feel assured in God to feel sure that God's covenant blessings were upon them, that they were indeed blessed, not cursed, that God in Christ really loved them, that their eternal future was bright and not bleak, that their future was full of hope and not grim. He wants them to feel these things that they would endure until the end in Christ. Is your life blessed? And how sure are you? Might God's word grant his people great assurance today? Let's turn to our text in Hebrews 6, verses 9 through 12. You'll find this in page 1004 of your pew Bible if you'd like to turn there. Hebrews 6, verses 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For his people. Let's pray. Father, we humbly, desperately, and confidently come to you now and simply ask that you would speak through your word for your glory. Give us repentance from sin, faith in Christ, and exactly what the author to the Hebrews talks about there in our text. Give us full assurance of hope until the end. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll notice four things about assurance in our passage this morning. You can see them in your bulletin insert. We'll notice that assurance is, first of all, possible in verse 9, theological in verse 10, experiential in verse 11, and finally, essential in verses 11 and 12. First of all, assurance is possible. One commentator writes, as the preceding verses, verses 4 through 8, were like thunderbolts by which the readers might have been struck dead, it was needful with these words to mitigate the severity. Words of warning are followed by words of comfort and affection. In verse 9, the author addresses his audience as beloved. This is the only place in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, in which this term is used. It's common in Paul's writings, but relatively foreign to the book of Hebrews, used here just once. The author, who was perhaps their pastor, reveals that he deeply loves this church. His thundering words in verses 4 through 8, we learn, flowed from a heart of love. And not only are these Hebrew Christians loved by the writer, they are loved by God the Father. When this word is used in the Gospels, it's used exclusively to refer to God's own beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And though we don't deserve it, we find that we too, in Christ, are God's beloved, loved by God the Father. The author continues as he addresses these beloved people, we feel sure of better things. Better things. That phrase, we feel sure, is one word in the original language. And unlike our English translation, it occurs at the beginning of the sentence. This word, which contains the idea of having a firm conviction by occurring at the beginning, takes priority. The author longs for them to know that he feels sure that they're blessed by God in Christ. Now, better is a term of comparison. It seems that what the author is doing is looking back on the two options that he presented in verses seven through eight, in reminding or assuring his audience that he feels sure that they're of the better option. He's convinced that his believers are like that; these believers are like the field, which had received the blessing from God in verse seven and would receive further gracious blessings, and not like the alternative, not like the land which had drunk the rain, yet had borne thorns, thistles and was near to being cursed. He felt sure of better things. These better things, the verse continues, are things that belong to salvation, things that belong to salvation. Though the author had warned about apostasy and destruction, we find, as John Owen says, that he was speaking merely unto them, not of them. One thing we learn from this is that God uses the warnings of His Word in the preaching of pastors, in the reproof of fellow Christians to keep us in Christ. Those warnings weren't meant for merely non-Christians. They were meant for the Christians. That's how God keeps us in Jesus. And we learn from our verses this morning that God also uses the encouragement and the affirmation of fellow Christians to give us assurance in Christ. Might we be a congregation who wisely and lovingly wields the sword of God's Word to both warn and affirm the brothers and sisters in our midst that we might all have assurance. Brothers and sisters, assurance in Christ is possible. And in verse 10, we find the basis for our writer's strong conviction. His assurance, if you look with me at verse 10, is based upon the very character of God. In other words, assurance is theological. Now, how might you complete the following sentence? Christians can have assurance because God is blank. I imagine our instinct might be to say, because God is love or because God is faithful, or because God is gracious. Now, those things are certainly true of God, gloriously true, and they're sources of great assurance. But isn't it interesting, perhaps even a bit startling, that our writer appeals to the justice of God? For God is not unjust. In fact, if I'm being honest, when I consider the justice of God, it often has something of the opposite effect. sometimes feel less sure. But notice what God's justice leads him to do or not do. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. The writer's saying, because God is just, his people are not forgotten. It's on the basis of God's justice that his people are not overlooked. It's on the grounds of God's justice that we can confidently say that not one moment of a Christian's life goes unnoticed by the loving eye of the Father. The writers saying it's not only that God will not overlook his people, it is that God cannot. God would be unjust to do so. God has bound himself to his own promises. God is a debtor, not to our works, but to his own word. Paul triumphantly declares on the heels of the assurance of pardon that we heard in Romans 3.26 that in Jesus Christ, God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When God declares a guilty sinner to be righteous in his sight, it is a just sentence. In fact, because God has chosen to lavish forgiving mercy upon all who come to Him through Jesus in repentance and faith, it would be unjust of God to do anything less. God is just, and that is unbelievably good news for those who are in Christ. Jesus has satisfied the demands of God's law. He has quenched fires of justice. And all that remains for you and me if we trust in Jesus is love. God's just love. God is not unjust so as to overlook his people. So as to overlook you. Assurance is theological. And notice that the writer points not only to the character of God, but he also appeals to the conduct of these Christians. God's gracious work, we find in verse 10, had produced fruit in this community. He notes their work in the love that they had shown for his name in serving the saints as they still did. Chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, detail at least some of the circumstances that the author would have been referring to. Listen to those verses. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now on the surface, this, this text might seem to teach a salvation or a standing with God based on works. I mean, the writer did, after all, say God is not unjust so as to overlook what? Your work. But we find that that isn't at all the idea of the text. It wasn't that the works of these Christians secured God's gracious blessings, but rather that they were evidence of it. What was the motivation of their work? We find it in verse 10. It was love. Who was the recipient of their service? God's people and to whom were they ultimately devoting their work? They were devoting it to the very name of God. What we learn from this witness is that these Christians have been transformed from selfish and sinful to selfless and sacrificial. They now cared more than anything about the needs of others and the name of God. And don't we know that this isn't the sort of thing that comes naturally, <laughs> to care about the needs of others in the name of God. We aren't born with an inclination toward this sort of service and sacrifice. At least I wasn't. Experience tells us what Instagram pictures won't. Babies aren't just cute and cuddly. Reality is far less romantic. Sin infects us all, no exceptions. It wields a power over us. But God in His grace had set these Hebrew Christians free from the power of sin. And because He had done that, He would not overlook their work, because their work was evidence of His. Therefore, it was only right, only just, that God reward them for their work with His ongoing favor. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying it's from that truth the character of God, and the conduct of their lives that bore witness to His grace, that they and we are to draw great assurance. Assurance is theological. Third, if you look with me at verse 11, we'll find that assurance is experiential. In other words, it's something we have to experience. It's experiential. Verse 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance. The original language makes it clear that it's earnestness that produces the assurance. There's a logical sort of flow. In other words, the writer's saying that assurance is something that you experience during and after obedience. Obedience leads to assurance. Every summer, my ministry campus outreach hosts a several weeks-long discipleship training project. We teach college students the basics of how to walk with God, how to study the Bible, how to live in community, and how to share the gospel. Now, our evangelism training at these projects often involves having conversations about the gospel with strangers. Year after year, I find myself afraid and incredibly anxious beforehand. And year after year, I find that I'm full of joy during, and after. I never enjoy the gospel more than when I'm sharing it in the few moments after I've shared it. It's how assurance works. Assurance is found in the midst of and on the other side of obedience. It isn't often until we take the step of faith that we find that the ground beneath us is firm. And the sort of obedience that leads to assurance, we learn, isn't just a one-time obedience. It's ongoing. Notice that the author appeals to uh, how they had begun serving the saints in verse 10 and how they were continuing to do so. We can't rely on past graces. That word earnest in our text could also be translated diligence. We must be diligent, faithful, and steady in obedience if we would walk in assurance. Now as I was preparing the sermon and meditating on this text, I was struck by how deeply our culture craves the very topic we're considering this morning, assurance. Doesn't our culture, perhaps all, all cultures do, but especially ours, wants to know that we know, to know that we have the real thing, that perhaps we are the real thing, the true thing, that we're authentic, that it's real. Perhaps you've heard the word deconstruction. It's increasingly common in in our moment to read stories of Christians, popular pastors, perhaps even our own family and friends who have deconstructed their faith. Now, these stories are sad, and I know almost no single story is the same as another. They often involve past hurt in the shame of personal sin. But what I do find noteworthy is this the impulse of our culture when seeking assurance is strikingly different from that of our text. The text is saying assurance is found along the path of obedience. Where do we often go for assurance? We often go elsewhere. The reality is, we won't find assurance in the ideologies taught on university campuses. We won't find assurance. By standing in solidarity with the social causes of our day, we won't find assurance in gospel absent therapy sessions, whether with professionals, friends, or our social media feeds. I say that as someone who's been to counseling and benefited greatly from it. Assurance is indeed theological, but it won't even ultimately be found in the ivory towers of theological studies. Where is assurance found? on the battleground of faith. It's found in the midst of and on the other side of obedience to Christ. Is it any wonder that folks who go elsewhere don't experience assurance but only experience more doubt? How might God be calling you to obey in a greater way, in a deeper way, that you might have the full assurance that verse 11 speaks of? Perhaps you'll find yourself helped as you consider that question by looking at the specific way in which these Hebrew Christians had demonstrated their earnest obedience. As we read about in chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, we see that they were generous despite their poverty. They were sacrificial despite their suffering. And they were concerned with God's name and fame and not their own. And brothers and sisters, we too must continually turn from ourselves and our sin and obediently follow Jesus if we would have assurance because assurance is experiential. And finally, assurance is essential. It is essential. We see this in the end of verse 11 and verse 12. The full assurance that verse 11 speaks about is future-oriented. Notice the last phrase in that verse. It's a full assurance of hope until the end. The author is telling us that a measure of assurance in Christ is essential to run the race of the Christian life. He continues on in verse 12, "...so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." Now, our verses today conclude a specific section of the letter, or perhaps the sermon, to these Hebrew Christians that was, that's characterized by warnings against apostasy. This entire section began in chapter 5, verse 11, and it concludes in 6.12. Having brought up the topic of Melchizedek in chapter 5, verse 10, a topic to which the writer is going to return in next week's passage, he digressed to address the spiritual stagnation in the midst of that community. He felt that he couldn't continue plumbing the depths of the gospel and the glories of Scripture and the beauty of the Christian life until he had put his finger on a particular area of concern in the congregation. He expressed that in chapter 5, verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. Not because Melchizedek is so confusing, but because they had become, he says, dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. That word dull in verse 11 is the very same word that the author now uses in chapter 6 verse 12 for sluggish. But he doesn't just refer to sluggishness or dullness of hearing in 6.12. It seems that he anticipates the fear of a potential progression in their lives. He fears that the dullness, the sluggishness, the laziness of their ears would progress, would make its way toward their souls and their hearts. Friends, we won't arrive at the finish line of the Christian life if we keep a sluggish, dull pace. The Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon, but we won't get there at a sluggish pace. We must be, as verse 12 says, imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises And assurance energizes us to run this race. In verse 13, the writer turns his audience's attention to Abraham. We'll consider this next week. Abraham's the consummate example of faith in the Hebrew Scriptures. It was Abraham who, as Paul described in Romans chapter 4, believed in hope against hope that he should become the father of many nations— Because God had told him, so shall your offspring be. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. He did not weaken in faith when he considered the barrenness of his wife, Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Some translations say that what God had promised, he was able to perform. And this writer is calling every Christian, calling you and me, to be like Abraham, to dare to take God at his word, to be fully assured that God is for us both now and for all eternity, and to live our entire lives accordingly. Now, it's worth noting that this sort of assurance that the writer talks about is foreign to all other religions and worldviews. The tenet of almost every religious system is that if you get assurance, you get it when you get to the end. Christianity alone says you can't make it to the end without it. Just as God declared that Christ was his beloved son at his baptism before his ministry, so God speaks his word. You are my beloved son at the beginning of our lives in Christ. As the late Tim Keller often heralded, every other religion says, if you obey, you will be accepted. The gospel says, I am accepted in Christ, therefore I obey. Dear brother and sister, if you have turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, you have literally every reason in all of the universe to believe with all of your heart that you are loved by God and blessed by God in Christ. No matter what your own flesh might tell you, the world might tell you, Satan might tell you, experience might tell you, circumstances might tell you, God himself tells you You are blessed. You are loved if you have turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus. Now, it's worth noting, if you haven't turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, there is no assurance that God loves you. I said at the beginning that all of humanity can be categorized by our relationship toward God being blessed or cursed. The way to move from cursed to blessed is to turn from sin and to look to Jesus with the eyes of faith, and to run to Him and to receive Him. That's where assurance is found. If you have done that, may you see your past, your present, and your future with the eyes of faith, trusting in God's promises, daring to look toward that which is unseen, not that which is seen. And there may be no better story to illustrate the life of faith than a woman who could only see with the eyes of faith. Fanny Crosby suffered from lifelong blindness due to a complication from illness that she contracted in her infancy. But Fanny could see what many could not. At the age of eight years old, she wrote her first poem. Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world, contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot, nor I won't. By the end of her life, she had written over 5,000 hymns. Some estimate it was as many as 9,000. Sometimes she would write as many as seven in a single day. She was forced to write under pseudonyms. Her hymns became incredibly popular after her death. She lacked much of what often we would regard as a blessed life. Health? No. Wealth? No. Fame? Glory? No. And yet she possessed something infinitely more valuable that so few people have. She wrote about her most treasured possession in what is perhaps her most popular hymn. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. May we too know this blessed assurance and so praise our glorious savior let us pray father in heaven your assurance your love even the words of this text if we're honest, just seem too good to be true, that You would actually, really, eternally love us. We find our hearts shrinking back from that reality. It feels too good to be true, too difficult to believe. We see within us all the reasons that we don't deserve to be loved. Experience tells us that, and yet Your Word Your gospel, your cross, Jesus, preaches a different word, speaks a better word. Father in heaven, we praise you that you have loved us with an everlasting love, that you call us your beloved. We thank you that you crushed your beloved son, that we would be adopted into your family. We pray, God, that you would give us a sense of assurance, the assurance that Paul talks about in Romans 5, where you pour your Holy Spirit your love into your people's hearts through the Holy Spirit that you've given us. And we pray that the result would be that we would endure until the end. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.